Well, if you're joining us for the first time, let me take a few minutes at the top just to bring you up to speed. This morning, what we're going to do is we're going to continue this series we've been in for the last several months called Unfiltered, Capturing a True Image of Jesus. Now, here's the core concept behind this series. Most historians, most scholars, most social commentators, most people who have studied this would agree that Jesus of Nazareth, more than anyone else, has had the most impact and has had the most influence on all of human history. But with that, we face a problem, especially in Western culture. And that's with each passing year, it seems as if we know less and less about Jesus. We know less and less about what he actually said. We know less and less about what he actually did. And this isn't just a problem in our secular world. This is a problem in the church world as well. And so what begins to happen then is we begin begin to recreate Jesus and we make a Jesus in our own image. The phrase we've been using is we put filters on the real Jesus to look more like us. And so all of a sudden, our Jesus has our upbringing. Our Jesus is from our geographical background. Our Jesus believes what we've been taught growing up. Our Jesus has our cultural views or cultural norms and so on and so on. And so the goal behind this series is that we want to see the real Jesus. And how we're going to do that is we want to go back to one of the earliest biographies of Jesus that show us, shows us his life and teachings. And that's the first book of the New Testament, the Gospel according to Matthew. Now, this morning, what I'm going to do is I'm going to continue something that Pastor Michael started two weeks ago. If you were with us, you remember that Michael took us through the beginning of Matthew chapter 4. We got to see the temptation of Jesus. And again, if you were with us, Michael focused very much so on the role of the word in our lives. See, Jesus responded to temptation by quoting the truth of Scripture. And so Michael talked about the authority of Scripture, the role it plays, the importance we should have for it. But what we wanted to do, because temptation is a big topic, temptation is also a very vital topic for us to learn and grow from as Christ followers, we wanted to go back to Matthew chapter 4 to take a deep dive into it. Michael set up the role of the Word, but this morning what I'm going to do is we go back to Matthew Matthew chapter 4, is I'm going to talk about temptation as a whole. See, because the truth of the matter is we live in a fallen world. We live in a broken world. We live in a sinful world. And because of that, as long as we are on this side of heaven, temptation is a reality we all face. We all have faced temptation. We all will face temptation. And the reality is for many of us, temptation is an area that brings up a lot of guilt. Because for many of us, when it comes to temptation, we see it as a point of failure. We have given in often, if not always, to temptation. And so what we're going to see by going back to Matthew chapter 4 is that when it comes to temptation, Jesus' experience is a model for us to follow. Jesus gives us a model to follow in his footsteps, and ultimately it is an encouragement in Scripture because what we see is that as we follow the model of Jesus, as we follow in his footsteps through the Holy Spirit, you and I can experience victory when it comes to our temptations. And so let's dive into that this morning. If you're following along in your note sheet, you got a section titled, The Temptation of Jesus. Open up your Bibles, turn on your apps. We're going to Matthew chapter 4. 
And so right at the beginning of chapter 4, Matthew writes, Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Okay, let's stop right there. In just those two verses, there's a lot to unpack. Michael emphasized this a lot two weeks ago, that we see the role of the Spirit, that it was the Holy Spirit that led Jesus to the wilderness, which is where he would face temptation. Now, let's clarify the role of the Spirit a little bit when it comes to our temptation. We're promised in the New Testament that the Holy Spirit will not tempt us to do evil. That's not what the Spirit does. However, like I mentioned earlier, we live in a world in which temptation is inevitable. And so while the Spirit itself won't tempt us, God will use temptation for His good, because God can bring good out of anything. And so what we see here through temptation is there's a lot of ways that God can use it for His good. But what we're going to see in this account is that one of the primary ways that God brings good out of temptation is that temptation is a great tool for honesty. It's when we face temptation that our true character is revealed. It's what we choose in temptation that reveals what we actually believe about God and what we actually believe about ourselves. It's in temptation in which we see the truth of God revealed, his power, his kingship, his faithfulness, and his promises. So you see, God can often use this temptation as a power, as a powerful tool that leads to honesty. But here's something else you need to know about the role of the Holy Spirit. See, the Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness, but the Spirit did not abandon Jesus in the wilderness. See, that Spirit was present with Jesus as he faced temptation. That Spirit sustained Jesus. That Spirit empowered Jesus to resist temptation. And what we need to understand for us today, Christ followers, if you have given your life to Jesus, that same Spirit is present with you. That same Spirit sustains you. That same Spirit empowers you. The Spirit that empowered Jesus to face that temptation is the Spirit that empowers you to face your temptation. Now, one of the best things we can do because we can't avoid temptation is to prepare ourselves for what we're going to choose when we face temptation. Kind of as an athlete prepares for the game, we need to prepare ourselves for this battle, so to speak. And one of the important ways of preparing ourselves for this battle is understanding the role of the devil in temptation and understanding his tactics. What does he use against us? And so as we saw in those first verses we read, we're introduced to the devil. He's also going to be called the tempter. He's going to be called Satan, which is the Greek form of saying adversary. Now understand the goal of the devil. The devil is the enemy of God. His goal is to get God's creation, us, to do the opposite of God's will. His goal is to have us do the opposite of God, to cast off our relationship with God. But what we're going to see in the devil's tactics is the devil does not have the power of God. The devil cannot back up his promises, but one thing the devil is, is a brilliant wordsmith. He is a good, good talker. And so when we see the devil tempt Jesus, when we experience the devil tempting us, he often will not do it in what's called a full frontal assault. 
The devil will not often come and go, hey, you know what? Let's be evil together. Let's be satanic. Let's completely renounce God. No, that's not what he does. What he does is he manipulates us with his words. He speaks in ways that we want to hear. He twists good things, and he tries to distort the character of God in our relationship with him. And so as we go through this, take note of his tactics, and we're going to see as he tempts Jesus three different ways that we can relate with each of these temptations. So with that, let's jump into the first temptation. So starting back at verse 2, after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. This is Jesus. The tempter came to him and said, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written. Would you underline that? Would you highlight that? put a box around it. Again, I love this example that Jesus counters lies with truth. It is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. So let's stop right there. We see two core tactics of the enemy. One, he attacked after Jesus had been fasting for 40 days and for 40 nights. Again, Michael hit this two weeks ago that the human side of Jesus was hungry, was starving, was weak. See, the devil is not often going to attack in our strength. And the reality is, Michael said this, that not every day is the same, right? But not every temptation is the same either. See, the reality is when it comes to temptations, there are things that I am weak towards that some of you are strong towards. And likewise, the opposite is true. There are things that you are weak towards that I am strong towards. And so the devil often will not target our strengths. The devil will often target our weaknesses. So one of the most important steps we can take to prepare ourselves for temptation is to be honest with where we are weak and we are vulnerable. Now that means you need to take some honest reflection and to look at your life. Where are there areas in which you're vulnerable? Where are there areas in which is a weakness for you in which you struggle or have struggled in the past? Where is an area that there is a potential for the enemy to get what's called a foothold in your life? Think of some common categories. Is your weakness in the area of pride that you need to be right? You belittle people. You run over them. It's your way or the highway. Are you weak in the area of anger that when you don't like something, you blow off the handle, you say hurtful things, you type or you write hurtful things? Is your weakness in the area of substances that you abuse alcohol or drugs, you use them as a coping mechanism? Maybe it's not an illegal substance, but something like food, you abuse it and turn it into an idol. Is your area, is your weakness in an area of sex and sexuality that instead of God's view of purity that we cross boundaries, we sleep around, we go the opposite of what he would have us do in our lives? Is your weakness in an area of insecurity, the voice in your head that's often saying, you're not good enough, you're not strong enough, the people around you are all a much better fill-in-the-blank than you are? See, we could go on and on and on, but the truth is to best prepare ourselves to deal with temptation, we need to be honest about where we are vulnerable. Now, hear me clearly on this. Being honest about my weaknesses is not fun. It's not something I enjoy doing, but this is the power of God. 
when I'm honest about my weaknesses, it is an opportunity for God to come into my life in those areas and be my strength. When I am weak, he is strong. And so honesty leads to God's power. And then through this temptation, we see a second tactic of the enemy. In fact, the tactic he's going to use over and over in that he attacks Jesus' relationship with God. See, the enemy attacks us by attacking our relationship with God. And how he does it is by trying to paint a distorted picture of God. The enemy attacks by trying to sow the seeds of doubt and trying to raise up this question, is God really for you? Does God actually care about you? Does God want to sustain you? Can he actually sustain you? And so what's interesting is how the devil starts. Do you notice that he uses the words, if you are the son of God? Contextually, what he's doing is he's not doubting Jesus' identity, nor is he trying to get Jesus to doubt his identity, but rather he's flattering Jesus and trying to get him to use his title to abuse his relationship with God. Have you ever tried to butter up someone when you were trying to convince them to do something? It makes me think of high school. When I was a punk high school kid, I would butter up my teachers when I did something wrong. I remember walking into biology class and going, Mrs. Smith, looking good today. <laughs> have, have you lost weight? You're looking fantastic. By the way, I did not do my homework. See, the devil is employing a similar tactic. See, what he's doing is he's trying to reach Jesus in his weakness. Jesus, you're hungry. Jesus, you've been out here for 40 days. And God is not providing food. God is not providing sustenance. You know what? You're the son of God. You don't need to wait for God to provide for this. God is obviously dropping the ball or he doesn't care. You can do this on your own. Can you relate to that? When you've been in times when you've asked God to provide, you ask God to give healing, sustenance, guidance, whatever it may be, and you feel as if you're still waiting. And the longer you wait, you feel as if the weaker you get. And then the devil comes in and tempts us, hey, you don't need to wait on God. He doesn't know what he's doing. In fact, as he flattered Jesus, another way of saying it is he's saying, you're better than God. God either doesn't care or can't, but you can do this. Do you see the devil attacks relationship by manipulating our view of God? And so what does Jesus do? Jesus goes to Scripture. Specifically, he goes to the book of Deuteronomy. Michael called these Scriptures, he's going to use the wilderness Scripture because it talks about the nation of Israel when they were out in the wilderness. And so what Jesus does is he combats the devil's view of God. See, the devil, often when he tempts us, he tries to narrow our focus. He wants you to focus solely on what you're not getting and on nothing else. But Jesus reminds us that the Bible describes a much bigger God. And Jesus is acknowledging, you know what? Maybe I don't have what I feel like I would want or need in this area, but God sustains in many more ways than just food. He's combating by his, with the knowledge that he has gained through his relationship with God. 
Hey, God has promised that he will care for me. God has promised to give me what I need to sustain me, to give me life. See, what's amazing about Jesus in the way he counters temptation is we see his view of scripture. To Jesus, God is the author of scripture. Therefore, you can trust the words of scripture. God has promised to care for us. God has promised that he will sustain us. And in those situations when we're tempted, when we don't know when the answer will come, when we don't know where the, quote, sustenance would come, what we can do through the model of Jesus is we can remember that God has promised to sustain us, and he is a God that fulfills his promises, that he will keep us, that he will sustain us. And so what you see is the tactic of the enemy, but the response of Jesus. The enemy attacked relationship with God. Jesus' response was to dig in deeper into that relationship with truth. And that's how you fight manipulation, with the word of truth. So that's the first temptation. Let's look at the second one. Then the devil took him to the holy city, that's Jerusalem, and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. Verse 7, Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. And so now we have the second temptation. And as we see the tactics of the enemy, his tactic is still what he did in the first temptation, is it not? He is challenging God's relationship with Jesus. And once again, his temptation is surrounded around the manipulation that God doesn't care about us, that God will not take care of us. And so this challenge, get up there and jump. See if God is true to his word, but if not, take care of yourself. And what's very unique about this temptation is what does the enemy quote? Scripture. He uses the Bible. Now hear me, he does not use it well. This is a tactic of the enemy to take the Bible out of context, to manipulate it, to twist it to say what he wants it to say rather than what God authored it to say. Now let me do a quick sidebar here. This is a very real trap and temptation for us today. See, often in arguments, in sin, we want to justify ourselves. We want God on our side, so to speak. And so the temptation is to take Scripture out of context and to use it to defend our viewpoint. That's why what we're doing here with a series like this is so important, that Scripture is not to be manipulated. We are to read it as God intended it. Because that is where we see truth. The other side of it, if we don't, then all we're doing is adding filters to Scripture, to God, to distort who he really is. Now, what's interesting about this request he made of Jesus is that Jesus could have done this. He had that power and authority. Jesus could have thrown himself from that building and had the angels come and save him. But he chose not to because to do that would have been an acknowledgement that I don't trust God. And so the devil used scripture poorly, and so Jesus counters with using scripture correctly. And he counters again, going back to the nation of Israel in Deuteronomy. And he talks and he quotes Moses that we are not to test God. Now, this is what's meant by that. 
See, Moses is responding to the complaints by the nation of Israel. They had been wandering in the wilderness. They were thirsty because they're in the wilderness. They're out in the desert. They didn't see where water was going to come from. And they believed because of that that God was no longer for them, that God would not sustain them. Now, let's do a brief history of the nation of Israel. This is after they had been released from Egypt. And if you're familiar with that story, the re being released from Egypt was a great show of miraculous power from God. This is after God had parted the Red Sea. Again, another great show of the power of God. They had seen other miracles as they had been in the wilderness. On paper, they had had more than enough evidence to send the message that God is for them. And yet, what is the enemy doing through them? Narrowing their focus. They see something they're not getting, and it throws out all the other things God has done. And again, can you relate to that? Where you've seen God show his miracles in your life. You have felt God's presence in your life. You have experienced him. And then when trial and tribulation hits, it feels like we forget all of that and we wonder, why do you hate me? Why are you no longer for me? And so Moses responds with, do not test God. In context, what that means, to not test God, means that I trust God. Do not test God means that I rest in his promises, that he will lead, that he will care, that he will fulfill. Because think of the metaphor of marriage. An unhealthy marriage is one that goes, do you love me? Then prove it. And this is the temptation the enemy is asking of our lives. If you want to know if God loves you, make him prove it over and over and over again. And trust is a very different thing. Trust is where genuine and healthy relationships come from. And even though it's hard, and even though it's tough, and I'm not here to minimize our struggles and our trials, it's trusting, even in the pain, that God cares for me. And so then the enemy goes to the third temptation. Verse 8, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you, bow, if you will bow down and worship me. And on this third temptation, the devil seems to have dropped all pretenses and has gone as blunt as he possibly can, right? And as we study the tactic of the enemy, the reality is we are given a very clear picture of what it means to give in to temptation. See, each and every time that I have given into temptation, what I have done is I have taken Jesus off the throne of my life and I have put something else there. Each and every time that I have given into temptation, I have declared my allegiance to another kingdom. I have decided to bow my knee to something that is not Jesus. I've decided to cast off that relationship and that is the core of sin. That is the core of temptation, to get us to cast off our relationship with God. Ultimately, to drive a wedge between us, to damage it, and to have us walk away. And in his tactics, we see him manipulating this thought of, this concept of giving us, quote, what we really want. See, Jesus is presented with the kingdoms of the world. And these are the kingdoms that Jesus had come to save, right? 
This is the world that Jesus had come to establish his kingdom with, to rule. And the enemy's, the enemy's tactics is this, again, manipulating the picture of God going, hey, this is what you came to do, right? Well, you know what? God's way seems a lot harder than it needs to be. God's way seems a lot longer than it needs to be. Hey, God's way is going to hurt more. God's way is going to have a lot more suffering. Why do that when I can offer you a shortcut? And again, the devil does not have power. It is lies. See, the devil may off talk a big game, but he cannot back it up. See, in this temptation, he offered Jesus the kingdoms of the world. But what we see is that God gave Jesus all authority in the kingdom of heaven and earth. The devil's lives will never compare to the promise of God. And so as we see Jesus' response, verse 10, Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Would you underline that? Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and angels came and attended him. Again, we're going back to Deuteronomy, but that word worship is so important as Christ followers. See, to worship God means that we have cast off sin in the old life. Worship is proof that God has created a new life in us. Worshiping God is not saying we are perfect, but worshiping God is saying, I am looking to grow. I have given my life to Jesus. He has forgiven me. He is changing me, and I am running or sometimes crawling, but either way, I am moving towards him. And so as we look at temptation, again, Jesus is painting a stark picture of the options. Which kingdom do I want? Do I want the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of defeat, or do I want to be aligned with the kingdom of light, the kingdom of truth, the kingdom of God? And again, the devil attacks relationship. God doesn't want you to have what you want. And in fact, sometimes that's true. God doesn't want you to have what you want because he wants you to have something better. The devil attacks our relationship with him. And Jesus' model is no, here is the real God. He is for us. He has given us his spirit. He leads us. He sustains us. He is our power. He is our courage. He is our eternity. And we will worship him only. And what I love about Jesus invoking worship is that when we commit to worshiping God, then what happens is we commit to fighting for that relationship. And through the model of Jesus, he did not fight with fists and weapons. He fought with truth. He fought with the picture of who God really is. And he experienced victory in temptation. Now, as we leave this passage today, do you see as we examine the tactics of the enemy, do you see that his tactics revolve around the same thing? Relationship. Would you write that word down? Because when it comes to sin... When it comes to temptation, that is the tactic of the enemy, is to attack our relationship with God. The enemy wants to divide, and the enemy wants to destroy that relationship. But as we see the example in the model of Jesus, we see that he combated the enemy's attack by digging deeper into his relationship with God. And as we leave our scripture, I want to unpack that truth a little bit further. And so again, if you're following on your note sheet, you've got a section titled, The Key to Victory. And your fill-in is this, the key to victory 
is deepening our relationship with God through his spirit. The key to victory is deepening our relationship with God through his spirit. Let me give you a little context of what I mean by this. See, we are created beings. We have been created by God himself. And as creative beings, we have been hardwired to live, to have natural urges to certain ways, the way that God desires. And one of the ways that God has wired us to the deepest part of our beings is he has wired us to be relational. God has wired us to be a reflection of him, that God desires relationships. Therefore, we've been wired to seek, develop, deepen, genuine, healthy relationships. In fact, later on in Matthew's gospel, Jesus is going to be asked, what is the most important thing I can do with my time? What is the most important thing I can do with my efforts? And he's going to answer with what's called the greatest commandments. Relationship. Love the Lord your God, and therefore, because of that, love other people. And it's because God so loves and desires relationships is why the enemy attacks it so vehemently. If you look at the nature of sin and temptation, what the enemy is trying to do is destroy our relationships, all of our relationships, but none more so than our relationship with God. Because he knows that if we follow God's value of relationships, if we follow his leading and model to develop relationships, we will protect these relationships from anything that would want to destroy it, which is sin. And let me give you an example. Let me illustrate through a model of that value. I want you for me, if you would, would you bring to mind a core friend of yours? Would you bring to mind somebody that you would call one of your best friends? In fact, would you bring to mind somebody that you would say, I am so close to this person that they are more than a friend, that they are family to me. Now think about that relationship. That relationship for many of us is precious, is it not? Therefore, we will do what we need to do to protect that relationship from harm. So think back on the history of that relationship. Think back to how it started and how you got to this point of depth where you are now. So I'm going to illustrate this by using a relationship in my life, by using one of my best friends that I've known most of my life who is a brother to me. I think back, and it always makes me smile how we met. We met back in high school. We were both drama brats, so we were doing all the plays in high school. And we connected because we both knew the words to Summer Lovin' from Greece. <laughs> and that began a new friendship. And as we developed our friendship, we found out that we had more things in common. We both really liked going to Disneyland, and we both had a huge affinity for the movie Top Gun. And when you're a high schooler, you don't really need anything else <laughs> than that. But what ended up happening in our friendship is as time went on, we knew that having a good time was the easy part, and we took the opportunity to deepen that relationship. Over the years, we not only had fun together, we began to share life together. We began to share the good, we began to share the bad. He is a Christ follower as well, and as we were growing in our formative year, we began seeking the Lord together. And year after year, and different friendships would come and different friendships would go, but he was one of those that was always there for me. At big milestones in life, when I got married, he was standing next to me. When he got married, I was standing next to him. When I had children, he was one of the first people to reach out. When he had children, I was one of the first people to reach out. 
And because of that, when I look back on the history of our of friendship, look back on the history of your friendship that you're picturing, do you not see times in which you had the opportunity to destroy that relationship? Do you not see times in which you had the opportunity to damage it by lying to one another, by being dishonest, by hurting each other emotionally, by selling them out, by showing pride? And I wish I could stand up here and tell you, man, in all these years, I never took that opportunity, but I did. I was a fallen human being. And one of the reasons why we're such good friends is in those moments, he took the opportunity to forgive me of my transactions. I would forgive him and let go of grudges. We would repent to one another. And I stand here now all these years later saying, as I look at that friendship, if something were to challenge it, if there is an opportunity to damage it, I'm going to fight for it because it matters too much to me. And the reason I use that as an illustration is that as a perfect example of the type of relationship we're called to have with Jesus himself. See, in the church world, in church culture, we have this phrase that we use often called having a relationship with Jesus. I have a relationship with Christ. I'm developing and growing my relationship with Christ. What I have is not a religion, but it's a relationship with Jesus. And there is beauty and truth in that statement. But the reality is we need to take a step back and go, okay, what does that even mean? Because here's an honest starting point for many of us. When we think of our deepest, most core relationships in our lives, and then we compare it to how we are and how we approach Jesus, for many of us, they feel radically different. I think for many of us, especially if we've grown up in the church for a length of time, when we think of our relationship with Jesus, it feels more like a stranger or an acquaintance rather than a deep relationship. For many of us, when we examine it, honestly, it feels more like, I know Jesus, or I know of him, I know things about him, but I wouldn't say I know him well. And therefore, we wonder, does he really know me well? Because of that, we sit there and wonder, well, can I really trust Jesus? I'm willing to trust him with salvation. I like the idea of heaven and eternal life, but I don't know him well enough to trust him with my finances or to trust him with my sex life or to trust him with my insecurities and my desires. And because of that, well, I don't know him that well, so I'm not really going to prioritize him. He'll, I'll get to Jesus when I get through these other things or these other relationships. Does that make sense? And so the reality is rather than having a relationship with God, we kind of treat it as being a stranger with him. And so the reason why Jesus modeled this for us is to show us that relationship makes all the difference in the world. And so if we want to strengthen ourselves to face temptation, then what we need to do is we need to deepen our relationship with Jesus himself. And how we do that is the way we deepen any relationship in this world, we invest in it. We invest. If you want to grow any relationship in your life, it grows through investment. And there's two key investments you can make to any relationship, but especially a relationship to the Lord that is going to pay huge dividends. The first investment you can make is time. When you invest time in a relationship, what is it that you're doing? You're getting to know the other person. They're getting to know you. You're sharing life. You enjoy spending time with one another. The more time you invest, the more you seek them out, the more you want 
to know them. When you invest action in a relationship, see, a healthy relationship is not one that's all about me taking and taking and taking. A healthy, genuine relationship is one in which I serve, is one in which I give, is one in which I encourage and I lay down for the other person. And if you think about both those investments, do you see through the model of Jesus that he invests in us like that each and every day? He has given us his time. He has come to this world to serve us, to free us from our sins. You know, what's amazing is when we invest in our relationship with Jesus, it makes all the difference with how we approach temptation. Because three core things happen when we invest in our relationship with Jesus. The first thing that happens is when we invest time and action in our relationship with Jesus, we begin to know God. And not this distant God, not this filtered God, but we begin to know the real God. We begin to know the real Jesus. We begin to know his character. See, maybe we've heard descriptions of God that he is good, that he is faithful, that he is strong, that he is our hope. But when we invest in our relationship with God, we begin to understand why he is those things. We begin to see that they really are true. See, when we invest in our relationship with God, we begin to know his promises towards us, that he loves us, that he leads us, that he has saved us, that he gives us hope. See, when we invest in our relationship with God, because we know who he is, we begin to know who we are. We begin to know our identity in light of who God is, who he has made us to be, the high view he has of us. The second thing that happens when we invest in our relationship with God is we begin to enjoy being with God. I said this before, and I'll likely say this again. God did not save us so that we could be grumpy curmudgeons. God did not save us so that your outlook on life was to look like you are miserable whenever you're, quote, forced to spend time with God. That is not a relationship with God at all. See, when we invest in God and we get to know God, we find out that our God is incredible. We find out that he is awesome. We begin to worship God. That's the core of worship, enjoying the presence of God, seeking the presence of God. We begin to come to this place where the saints gather, seeking God, enjoying God through teaching, through interaction, through singing, through fellowship. But then we realize we can enjoy God when we're not in these walls. When we go out in our lives individually, we begin making time to experience God, to seek him on our drive to work in the morning with a cup of coffee as we lead our families because we enjoy him and we want to spend more time with him. And then the third thing that happens when we invest in our relationship with God is we begin to hear God's voice in our lives. We begin to hear God leading us we begin to see a deeper opportunity to follow after that leading. We hear God correcting us, calling out sin, because he doesn't want any roadblocks between us and him. We hear in that correction God forgiving us. We hear God encouraging us. Even if it feels like we don't find encouragement anywhere else, we hear his precious voice, and it is good. See, more than anything, when we begin to invest in our relationship with God, protecting that relationship is no longer an obligation, but it is our joy. And we will fight for it.
See, I love an example in the very first book of the Bible, in the book of Genesis. There's a great example of this type of relationship through the life of a man named Joseph. And Joseph's life is a long story with a lot of ups and downs. But at this particular point, he had been sold into slavery. He had been bought by the captain of the guard, a man named Potiphar. Through Joseph's work ethic, through his character, he had been elevated to be the head of Potiphar's household. And Potiphar's wife approaches Joseph and propositions herself to him. She says, sleep with me. Let's have sex. Let's have an affair. And what I love is that Joseph, being a man of God, being a man of character, he says no. But what I love is how he says no. See, Joseph doesn't refuse that proposition by saying, I don't want to break a rule. Joseph doesn't refuse that proposition by saying, I don't want to deal with the consequences of this. Joseph refuses that proposition because he knows it would harm his relationship with God. And there in your note sheet, I put his quote out of Genesis 39. How could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? Why would I allow this to damage this relationship? He's saying, this is the best thing I have. When I have lost everything else, I have this. He sustains me. He gives me. So no, I'm not going to give in to the temptation because what I have experienced is better. And that's the power of the Holy Spirit. And like I mentioned earlier, when it comes to growing our relationship with God, we're not left alone to figure this out. See, the same spirit that led and sustained Jesus is the same spirit that lives within us. And when we want to deepen and develop our relationship with God, it will happen through the power of the Holy Spirit. We need to be willing to follow, but the Spirit will lead us in that endeavor. And so with that, there's many ways in which the Spirit can lead us to deepen and develop our relationship with God, to strengthen our resolve in the face of temptation. But in my experience, there's two core ways that the Spirit tends to lead each Christ follower. And what I want to do briefly is I want to get practical and talk about these two ways. So there in your note sheet, you've got a section titled, Two Important Steps. And the first fill-in is this. An increased awareness of God's presence The Holy Spirit will lead us to a deeper relationship with God through an increased awareness of God's presence. What's meant by that is that a key component towards deepening our relationship with God is becoming more aware of the truth that God is with me always, that God is always present, that there is no place there is no situation in which God is not there, that he has committed to me, that he has invaded my life, and he is with me always. I like how it's put in your note sheet by Tozer. God is indeed there. He is there as he is here and everywhere, not confined to tree or stone, but free in the universe near to everything and next to everyone, and through Jesus Christ, immediately accessible to every loving heart. Would you underline immediately accessible? It would be less than honest to promise every believer continual jubilee and less than realistic to expect it. As a child may cry out in pain, even when sheltered in its mother's arms, so a Christian may sometimes know what it is to suffer, even in the conscious presence of God. But all will be well. 
The knowledge that we are never alone calms the troubled seas of our lives and speaks peace to our souls. We underline that last part and speaks peace to our souls. See, I've come to experience in my own life that many times I'm not aware of the ever-present of God, present, ever-present presence of God simply because I'm not looking for it. See, I often fall into this trap, and I think many of us do as well, is that we put God in a series of boxes. And so here we have a series of boxes of places or situations in which we expect God to be. So coming to church, we expect that God will be here. Going to life group, we expect that God will be here. Having a spiritual conversation, we expect God to be there. In a time of prayer, we expect God. In a time of blessing, when things are going well or we have been given something, we expect God to be there. But then there's also another series of boxes in which we have places and situations in which we don't expect God to be there. And it may not be a conscious decision. We're just not looking for him. It may be work. We don't expect God to be there simply because we're not looking. It might be in our family life. It might be with our friends or in our hobbies. It might be in trials and in hardships and in temptation. Often we don't see the presence of God because we're not looking for it. And there is a huge difference made by intentionally looking. Let me illustrate this with two different analogies. So the first one is this. Place yourself going to Target, let's say. Now, when you're in Target, you're usually there for a reason, right? You're getting things that you need or you're just enjoying the wonderland that is Target. (laughs) Now, have you ever had this experience in a place like Target where you're focused on what you're doing and someone that you know comes up to you and they get super close to you and you had no idea that they were there? Maybe they call out your name, or maybe they touch your shoulder, and you kind of shudder because it was like a ninja sneak attack. You're like, whoa, how how did you do that? Have you been there the whole time? And what's the reason why you didn't see them? Because you weren't looking. You didn't walk into Target with their face in your mind going, I'm going to run into this person here. You weren't looking. You had another objective. Now, the second illustration. Have you ever been waiting for someone to pick you up and they were late. (laughs) Whether they're late, or the Uber is late, they're not responding to text messages, or they're giving you the I'm five minutes away excuse. (laughs) And what do you start doing as you start waiting, as they're late? You begin looking up and down the street for them, don't you? And it's amazing when you're intentionally looking for the person that's late, that you can see them miles away, can't you? kind of squint and go, there they are, wearing that green shirt, and you watch them come all the way. Now, the reason why I use those analogies is we see the power that intentionally looking does for us to be able to see people. See, the reality is when we begin intentionally looking for God, the Holy Spirit opens our eyes, and we begin to realize that God has been with us all along that he is there in the situations we didn't expect, that he is there in the situations we thought he had abandoned us in. We see that he is there. And when we begin to see God in our lives always, that means there is no situation in which we don't experience his power. That means there's no situation in which we don't experience his courage, his strength, and his hope. 
And so the first way that the Holy Spirit deepens our relationship is by lifting the fog and showing us that God is present always. And how do we begin to see that? It begins with a simple but profound prayer. Identify the places or the situations in your life in which you would say you're not actively looking for God. And pray, Holy Spirit, reveal Jesus in this place. Holy Spirit, reveal Jesus in this situation. Holy Spirit, move my eyes past what's right in front of me and show me the God that is all around me. And I guarantee you, the Holy Spirit will begin to open your eyes and you will begin to see your Jesus everywhere. That's the first way the Holy Spirit deepens our relationship. The second way the Holy Spirit deepens our relationship, and you're filling is this, is by maturing through Scripture. By maturing us through Scripture. Now, let's talk about the word and the concept of maturity. Because <laughs> I'm willing to bet that for many of us, we would agree that maturity is a good thing, but the honest thing is we don't have a positive view of that word or that concept. Because if you think about it, more often than not, the word maturity is used is when somebody is yelling at us or when we're yelling at someone for lacking it. For some of you, maybe you can relate to me that there are times when I hear that word and it still sends shivers up my spine of having an authority figure wagging a finger in my face going, you're not being mature, Dre, which knowing me was probably well-deserved. And so what I want to do is I want to give us a new filter for what I mean by maturity. See, maturing in the Lord does not mean perfection. Maturing in the Lord does not mean that we know everything there is to know about God. But here is how I define maturity of any kind, but especially with the Lord. Maturity is having a genuine commitment. Maturity is having a genuine commitment. So when you have a genuine commitment to someone or something, what you're committed to is growing in knowledge of them, knowing them better, learning them more. What are they like? What are their hopes? What are their desires? When you grow, are committed to someone, you grow in your maturity by taking action towards that person, by loving them, by encouraging them, by serving them. When you have a commitment to someone, you grow in maturity by having a confidence about where you stand. You don't have to worry if that friend or that spouse or that coworker likes you. You know that you do because of the commitment you have through maturity. And the power of maturity makes all the difference when it comes to our, our relationship with Jesus. See, God's desire for each and every one of us is to grow, to become mature Christ followers. And to grow, to be committed to grow in maturity means that we are taking steps to take ownership of our faith. Ownership means learning to live out our faith outside these walls. Ownership means taking simple steps, daily steps, to live out our faith when nobody's forcing you to it. So the Bible sometimes uses the analogy of infants compared to adults. And it's a good analogy. Think about when you gave your life to Jesus. 
Some of you, it's been recently. Some of you, it's been a number of years. But when you gave your life to Jesus, you were a spiritual infant. And that's not a bad thing. That is a good thing. Think about babies. Babies are pretty helpless, right? But you have people come alongside them to feed them, to grow them, to teach them to the point where they can get strong to take a step and then another step on their own. And that's our journey spiritually. See, when we come to the Lord and we become spiritual infants, we need people to feed us. We need people to hold us by the hand. We need people to strengthen us. But then we learn to take steps on our own. And owning our faith means that when we're away from these walls, we are still pursuing God. Owning our faith means that when Michael or myself aren't around, we are still Christ followers. Earning my step means more of invest, means that on our own, we are beginning to invest in our relationship with God. And one of the accelerators of maturity is scripture, as we've been talking often about this throughout this series, that more often than not, the Holy Spirit speaks to us through scripture. And what I love about scripture is that scripture gives us the model for maturity, the life of Jesus. This blows me away. It's such an encouragement to me that as we look at this example of Jesus facing temptation, as we look at the example of other examples of how Jesus lived his life, he is an example of what life can look like when you follow the Holy Spirit. Not only do we have that model, but we are told in Scripture, because you have that spirit, you can live that life too. And it comes through maturity. It comes through being empowered because you know what else happens in maturity is we begin to experience victory in our temptations because what happens through maturity, what happens as the, as the Lord reveals himself through scriptures is we learn what right is, we learn what wrong is, we learn how precious and awesome right is, and we learn how evil and destructive wrong is. And we're no longer following blind rules, but we see it in the context of relationship. I like how it's put there in your note sheet by Chuck Swindoll. It's not enough to have a pastor or a teacher feed us once a week. We need to be able to prepare our own spiritual meals on a daily basis. This spiritual maturity enables us to discern right and wrong on our own. We learn to think clearly and correctly to determine what is good and what is bad. Digesting the solid food of God's word directly affects our actions. We learn, not only to, we learn to not only know what is right, underline this last part, but to do what is right. That's a sign of maturity. As I mentioned, the example, the contrast between infants and growing adults, the author of Hebrews talks about that there in your note sheet, Hebrew 5, anyone who lives on milk being still an infant is not acquainted with the teachings about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. The goal of the Holy Spirit, the goal of the Lord in our lives is to grow our maturity. And one of the primary ways he does that, one of the key accelerators, is he does that through Scripture. And so as we wrap up this entire teaching, what I'd like to do is I'd like to invite the worship team to come on out. And as we prepare to go into one more song, I want to ask you a question. Are you willing to let the Holy Spirit do his work in your life? Are you willing to let the Holy Spirit lead you to a deeper relationship with God? 
Now hear me very clearly. This is a very different question than are you ready? Because if we ever waited till we felt like we were ready, nothing would ever happen. But the Holy Spirit is with us here now. Christ follower, the Holy Spirit is with you. The Holy Spirit is ready to continue to transform you, to lead you. Are you willing to let him do his work, to deepen your relationship, to strengthen you for when you face the temptations of your lives? And if so, let me encourage you as we go into this time of singing, as we go into this time where we receive our gifts and offerings, may this be a time in which you let the Holy Spirit do his work. May this be a time in which you encounter God in a powerful way. Let's pray. Father, the key to victory when it comes to temptation is a deeper relationship with you. What a beautiful thing. What a wonderful thing, Father. And so we pray as the Holy Spirit is here with us as Christ followers, we are saying that we do not want to be a church that's lukewarm. We do not want to be a church that's apathetic. We do not want to be a church of infants, but we want to be a growing, maturing church. Father, thank you that we don't lack maturity when we stumble, for you forgive us. Thank you that you pick us up and you continue to guide us on our way. Father, we are committing to you. Holy Spirit, do your work because we cannot find maturity without you. Show us where we are weak and in those areas, make us strong through your power. Give us the sustenance that we need to resist temptation. Give us the joy when we see our relationship with God. Holy Spirit, do your work. We are willing and ready to receive what you have for us today. Father, we thank you for these gifts we're going to receive. We thank you for what you're doing with them. Continue to use them to unleash a movement of passion in Christ followers. In your son's name, Jesus, amen. Let's stand up and worship together. You know, I love that we ended on that song because it's a great picture of the life the Holy Spirit leads us to live, a life of strength, a life of security. Christ followers, as you leave this place, if you don't take anything else with you, please take this. That spirit lives within you. That spirit is leading you. That spirit is calling you to deepen your relationship. That spirit is fighting temptation alongside of you. That spirit is giving you courage and hope and strength, even in your darkest times. Never forget who you are. Never forget whose you are and the, and the joy and the power that the spirit brings. Amen? Hey, if you would like to pray with somebody before you leave this place, both here in the worship center and over in the ridge, along my right, along that wall, there's some men and women from our incredible prayer ministry there. They're wearing badges to identify themselves. They would love to pray with you about anything you feel on your heart to pray with, anything the Holy Spirit might be speaking to you today. Next week, I really hope you would make every effort to join us. See, as we continue in this journey in Matthew's gospel, we're going to get to Jesus beginning his preaching ministry. And the very first thing he talks about is the kingdom of God, just like John the Baptist had a little while ago. And we're going to get to take a look at what it means from the Old Testament to the New that God's kingdom is here, that because of Jesus, he has brought his kingdom to earth. He has brought his kingdom to us, and we are now citizens of his kingdom. And it's going to be a spectacular time and an encouraging time. Hope you can join us to be there. Have a great week, Rocky Peak. We'll see you next time. <laughs>